Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So we are in First Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 today. And while you're turning there, and just by way of a reminder, uh, as we started in First Thessalonians, we talked about that the city of Thessalonica, uh, to whom the letter was written, was uh, the largest city of the Macedonian province. Uh, province. Uh, it was along the major east-west Roman highway and was not far from a very busy port. And there were some north-south uh, trade routes uh, that were nearby as well. And uh, so it was a, a big city of commerce um, and uh, was a large city generally and was large enough to have a synagogue there. And it was to that synagogue that uh, Paul had gone uh, on one of his missionary journeys to preach. And uh, it didn't go, uh, well, I guess it went well, uh, but he kind of had to leave in a hurry because of local Jewish opposition. So he was there three or four weeks. Um, and we know that this book is written uh, after he has received from Timothy uh, a good report about how things have been going uh, since he left. And so we'll pick up um, in chapter 2. And... Um, uh, but before I do that, let me highlight just a couple of verses in chapter 1. If you look at uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, it says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Here... At the, in this first little section, uh, Paul introduces uh, one of the ideas that he's going to elaborate on in chapter 2 today, and that is the manner with which he came to them. Uh, he said, you, you know what kind of men we were. Uh, you, we were with you long enough for you to judge our character, how we behaved, and he's going to elaborate on that because uh, when, when you receive a message you have to consider the messenger, right? Uh, how many times have you had a conflict where you may have liked what a person was saying, but you didn't like the person that was saying it, or vice versa? Uh, as is often the case, you might really like a particular person, but when you start to really think about what was said, you maybe you don't like that so much. And... Uh, there, you have to consider those two things, and Paul's going to really dive into that uh, in these next few verses. So, verse 1 of chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Our coming to you was not in vain. That's the ESV and the New American says that. Uh, the the um, NIV says, you know, our visit to you wasn't a failure. That was the 1984 version. The more recent NIV says, you know, our visit to you was not without results. So you get the idea that he's reflecting on the idea. Get some strange, uh, what is it? Uh, he's reflecting on the idea that uh, although he probably had doubts about how things were going, uh, things turned out okay based on the report that he had heard from Timothy. And he elaborates on this in verse 2. It says, 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So as I was thinking about this verse, I always like to look at the verses before I expose my thoughts to the commentaries. Um, it's an exercise that kind of forces me to think, okay, what are the verses saying to me? And then um, also a little bit of a test on, you know, how did my thoughts line up? Uh, sometimes they line up okay, and sometimes I set my ideas aside. Uh, but it says, our coming to you was not in vain. And it, it hit me that in, in context of where he had just finished up in Philippi, because there was even more opposition there, as he was going to the ne- this next town, the idea hit me uh, that he said, our coming to you was not in vain. I took that to mean um, it wasn't hopeless. I had hope when I came to you. Even though things had not gone well for me at the preceding place, I had hope that I was, I was still confident in my message, right? I was still confident that I had reason to believe that the gospel message was going to make a difference. And as it turns out, if you look at it the other way, he's reminding them that there were, in fact, results. Look at how he came. One commentator said this speaks to Paul's courage. In the latter part of verse 2, it says, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he declared the gospel with boldness in the midst of obstacles. That's pretty much what every Christian has on his or her plate for the last several millennia, right? We're supposed to be bold, declare the gospel, and be expectant of some pushback, of some situations where it's probably not going to go well, of the fact that even if it might seemingly go well in some regards, it may create opposition as an echo of the gospel, so to speak. Uh, Some people may not like the effects of the gospel in a particular locale, in a particular culture. But here he was doing what I think all of us will need to be doing, declaring the gospel with boldness and expecting rather than being surprised by some pushback. He says we came in boldness to declare the gospel and so forth. And then he goes on to verse 3 with a bit of a, a defense, you might think. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Um, I don't know the the fullest meaning behind this, but apparently this this statement that he's saying, I'm not my, my appeal did not spring from error or impurity, or attempt to deceive. That trio of phrases there apparently um, was somewhat of a common disclaimer of the day to saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm verifying what I'm saying and I'm um, separating myself from uh, appearances of outside influence. Uh, the only... Uh, Quick example I could come up with is uh, if you ever watch uh, YouTubes, like I watch YouTubes of camping people, and very often there'll be 
um, demonstrating some new piece of equipment, right? And some will say, hey, this episode is sponsored by the company that's making this piece of equipment that I'm using. So it's very obvious that they're promoting it. Other times, they'll highlight something, like I was watching one and he really liked this particular dehydrated meal. Uh, no, it sounds appetizing. But, um, and he was going on and on about this meal and he said, oh, by the way, um, I bought this meal and I'm not sponsored by this company. So which opinion carried a little more weight? Well, obviously the one where he said he paid for it himself, you know, assuming we can believe it. But uh, one of the one of the themes that I think carries through this whole passage is this concept that we should ask questions of the messenger. Uh, we it's okay to uh, to, uh, to to do that, and um, and I think Paul is is kind of rising to that challenge a little bit. He says our appeal does not spring from error or impunity or any attempt to deceive. And he goes on to talk about the power of the gospel, and it reminded me of a passage that was um, well known to me when I was in college. I was the um, roadie and sound tech guy for a singing group that went around, and our leader started most of our uh, concerts with this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where Paul is giving a similar kind of defense. He says, when I came to you, brothers, so once again, he's reflecting back on his time with the church in Corinth. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What are these themes? There's the message and there's the messenger. Now, in a way, we know that Paul was quite eloquent and he probably was able to go toe-to-toe with uh, some of the people of the day, but he's saying that wasn't the main thing. The main thing was the gospel. The main thing was the spirit of God and the power there and Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the main thing. We know that 1 Corinthians was written later than 1 Thessalonians, so we have probably a more fuller um, uh, uh, more fully developed uh, preamble here, but it has that same um, concept, which is a little bit defensive, or at least defending, you might say, but he's not so much defending himself as, as he's also defending the gospel. Verse 4, I'll pick up again, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. So he's asking them to evaluate him. He's also submitting himself saying, ultimately, God's going to be evaluating me. Uh, And I think that's something that anyone who has had leadership uh, in any role, uh, that's the highest standard, knowing that not only are we evaluated by our peers and, and, and submitting ourselves to our uh, local leadership and so forth, but, uh, but we're ultimately accountable to God. 
Verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, for God is witness. This made me think about the general concept of financial accountability uh, among the messengers that are vying for our attention. Uh, I've mentioned it before, but um, I would really encourage you, as most of us have a few places we go to for news and for commentary and perhaps for accountability. Um, I think most people know that when you read something that just sounds too odd to be true, that, you know, it. number one, it probably is too odd to be true, but, but many people would... Uh, before they hit that forward button, I hope you do this, that you head over to something like Snopes.com or something like that to see, you know, has this been checked out? Uh, is there any truth at all? Uh, are you just going to contribute to some urban legend? But in, in evangelical circles, uh, I would definitely encourage you to make ministrywatch.com part of your um, source of truth for things because they really uh, vet um, over a thousand ministries that are either Christian or purport to be Christian, and they give them a grade, um, whether you are um, uh, can have good confidence in, in giving to these places. Um, it's actually based uh, in uh, Matthews, uh, North Carolina, uh, so we're neighbors. Uh, the guy that runs it is uh, Warren Smith. Uh, Dad's talked about World Magazine. Um, Warren Smith, I'll give you a little bit of his, his bio. He was uh, at one point vice president of the World News Group that publishes World Magazine. Uh, he worked for the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Um, but for um, many years, he was uh, employed at Price Waterhouse, one of the big accounting firms. So he's fused his accounting expertise with uh, his evangelical um, uh, desires, and uh, he wrote a very interesting article that pulls a lot of this together along with current events, and he has an article called um, A Ministry Watch Guide to Giving to Support Israel. Of course, Israel's in the news nowadays. Pastor Bobby's been talking about this. Uh, we're getting a part two today. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to uh See how he uh, lands the plane. Um, but he gives several important points I want to highlight. He said, first of all, the old rules apply. By that, he says, just because there's a crisis doesn't mean a ministry that's been poorly run in the past is all of a sudden a good ministry, right? I thought that was a really good point. He said, beware of matching gifts or challenge gifts. He said, Though sometimes these are legitimate, sometimes in crisis they're often used to heighten the sense of urgency. So he said, so be careful. He goes on to say, look out for ministries that already have boots on the ground. He said, when crisis erupts, it's too late for some ministry to start heading to a particular area. That's not going to work. Go with people who've been doing it already. And then, as always, ask where the money's going. And he, he compiles a list of ministries that are... Uh, recommended. Um, there's several. There's some that um, have ministry not just to Israel, but like here's one called the Joshua Fund. 
It says it's a nonprofit dedicated to blessing Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, according to Genesis 12. It works with Jews, Arabs, and Palestinians living in Israel, the West Bank, and neighboring nations. And it says the Joshua Fund is one of Ministry Watch's highest-rated ministries. Uh, he mentions several others. Um, uh, he has uh, pretty good things to say about Samaritan's Purse. He said, although we, they have some board governance issues which we wish they would fix, uh, he said that's a conversation for another day, and among evangelical organizations, Samaritan's Purse has unmatched experience in conflict zones. And there are several others, some big, some little. Um, but then the one that uh, actually brought me to this page that I was looking up, and you've seen the ads for the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, right? You know, this poor Jewish Russian woman who just looks destitute in poverty, and she gets, you know... 20 bucks worth of groceries and just is beside herself. And, you know, God bless her. But um, here's the dirty little truth behind that. First of all, that fit, that footage is decades old and does not reflect the current status of Jews in Russia. That's point number one. Point number two, this is absolutely not a Christian organization. Uh, this is uh, an organization that um, what they actually do is is try to bring um, uh, Jews and other countries back to Israel. Okay, fine. But what they've done is they've hooked up with some of the same marketing firms that respected evangelical uh, organizations use. Well, this marketing firms know how to package things for Christians, right? Um, the found, the uh, founder of this company at the most recent report, took $3 million from the organization for salary. Uh, the, his daughter, who is a spokesperson currently for the organization, took 700000 for herself in the most recent report. And they are one of just a handful of organizations that has more than one person on the top 10 uh, uh, most compensated people in ministry, um, our top I guess it's top 25 list he compiles of who makes the most from various ministries. Uh, th so this organization has two people on the list. They had a net income uh, of over $40 million last year. And by the way, if you're a Jew and you decide to convert to Christianity, they drop you. So please don't send any money to the International what is it? Organization for International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. Uh, it's just not a racket I would want to send my money to, uh, and I would encourage you not to either. Um, by the way, there is an organization that has four people on the top 25 most compensated list. I think I mentioned this before, and these are our neighbors up at INSP uh, who have uh, not only four in the top 25, but two in the top 10, uh, raking in millions and millions of dollars. Um, not sure what they're doing, but they're doing it well. Um, So, ministrywatch.com, I put in that plug, um, and I think they, the way they evaluate ministries, I think, is a good model for us on how we should evaluate people. And Paul is setting the standard up. He's asking the people in Thessalonica, you know, check me out. Consider, and he's, he's not done, uh, consider how I behaved before you. And you might say when, when all these different organizations, as soon as they show up on our phones, 
they're in our location. They might as well be in our neighborhood, and it's our responsibility to check them out and to uh, support those that need supporting and, and um, in contrast, let those wither that, that are not being wise with your money. All right, back to verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. What do what do people usually gravitate toward if you see somebody um, in the high rankings of of publicity or ministry or whatever, um, there's money. So he's talked about greed and there's glory and popularity, right? Glory from people. And those same two things are out there. And um, again, there, there are several ministry leaders that I really resonate with some of the things they say, but I choke on some of the things they do. And it makes me question. You know, I've had people I, I used to follow and, you know, all of a sudden come out with a best-selling book. And you find out, well, how'd they get a best-selling book? Well, they used runarounds and, and surrogates to purchase books for them and, and run up, the, run up the, the sales tally so they get on the New York Times best-selling list. Um, many people have done this, and uh, even respected people, I've just found out... Uh, uh, is it Dave Jeremiah? No, what's his first name? David. David Jeremiah. Hired this company to go buy a bunch of books so he could be on the New York's bestseller list. Um, you know, it just seems shady. It makes it, it just casts a, a, a pale over things that doesn't need to be there. You know, he may be saying some pretty good stuff out there, but it just makes you makes you wonder. And he's and Paul's saying, you know, you don't have to worry about that with me. And not only. Did I do that? But we're going to see later. He talks about I supported myself, so we'll get there. Nor do we see glory from people, whether you or from others. So we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of, taking care of her own children. Um, let me spend just a moment. This is a good example of uh, the. Uh, many careful decisions that those involved with Bible translation have to go through. I'm reading from the ESV. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Uh, who's got New American Standard? Somebody read that. We proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cared for. All right. Um, who's got uh, NIV? Read I got, that. I got 84. Okay. It says, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Okay. The recent one says, the recent NIV it starts with verse 6. It says, We were not looking for praise from people, nor, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority 
Instead, we were like young children among you. Does anybody have that reading? ESV, we were infants. We were infants. Now, my ESV says we, we were gentle, but um, maybe there's a... It does say gentle. I, I clicked on the little uh, link for right. alternate translations. <laughs> right, so it's interesting. What does this word mean? We were gentle among you, or we were infants among you. The difference in Greek is one character. Were you going to say something? I was just wondering who's gentle, the children or the mother? Well, yeah. I mean, and we we're, so here's here's the here's the thing. It says the word gentle and the word infants. They they're separated by one letter at the start. The Greek letter new at the start of the word. If you include the letter nu, it reads infants. If you drop the nu, it reads gentle. Some of the earliest manuscripts, um, it's kind of 50-50 as to which is there. So the question is, did a scribe add a nu or drop a nu? Uh, does it mean infants or does it mean gentle? Because it's the the whole message isn't changed that much, but you see the struggle. So the NIV basically, and and I read some commentators that made a very compelling case. Apparently, there's a principle of translation when a situation like this that the more difficult and the illogical the translation, the more likely it is to be the right one. Now, that might seem counterintuitive, but they say if a scribe was tempted to fix something, they're more likely to fix it to make it sound better, to sound more logical than they are the other way around. Make sense? That one took me a minute, I got to tell you. So what, the, what some commentators say they say, and remember, all of our verses and everything are purely artificial, right? So the, the ESV and the New American say it, they started out as a new sentence. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The translators of the NIV and some other commentators who agree with that say they hook the first part of verse 7 up with, with verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. And I'm switching over here. Instead, we were like young children among you. Period. Okay. In other words, they came with the innocence of children. That fits the context, right? And then it goes on. They, they start a new sentence, the way the NIV does it. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Well, that makes sense, too. So I'm not really arguing for either position. I just want to highlight to you all of the thinking that would go into making that decision. And especially, you know, I think of our friends 
uh, actively involved in Bible translation that so many of us are close to here. Um, it just gives me a great respect for how they would struggle on one little, one little letter and how to deal with that. And, okay, we've got this and this. We've we got to make a call. We've got to put something down. We can't leave a blank, right? You've got to make a decision. And so, you know, I think well-intentioned people maybe have landed on both sides of this. And, um, but it just gives you respect for, um, for that process, I guess, was the point I was trying to make. Now let's look at the, uh, what we think it says. Um, if you say we were infants among you, you get the idea. They came with the innocence of children. The second concept, we came like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Um, and apparently the, the word there is like a nurse. In other words, a, a woman who would be providing milk for children who were not her own, knowing that some women aren't able to provide milk on their own. There was no formula back then, right? If you couldn't provide enough milk, you had to find a woman that could, right? So there were women that, that would provide that service for, for those children and it's saying this is like a woman who's been doing this for other children, but even more so the care that she does it for her own children, right? And so that's the a very maternal um, image there. That's the, that's the love that he's trying to convey to the, this group of people. Verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You can just see this, this heartfelt emotion, truly affection for these people. He had only been there three or four weeks. And yet in that period of time, he became so affectionate toward them. It's almost like he was going to the next town, right? He run out of Philippi. Um, he and Paul, and I mean, uh, he and uh, Timothy and Silas, they're on to the next one, and they're just preaching the gospel, right? They're doing their thing. They don't know how it's going to go, but he was, he was so surprised. He, he wasn't really even expecting to connect with them so much on an emotional level. They, it sounds like they became immediate friends, um, true brothers in every sense of the word. And, and some of you may have memories of this. You know, many of you have traveled and been in different places in different times that there were probably people that you came across that even though you weren't with them very long, you just felt that immediate connection with them through the Holy Spirit and how meaningful that is and how fond you, you feel toward that person. And that's, that's what he's trying to get across. And Look at what he's doing as he's personally connecting with them. What do you think that does as they consider the message that he's about to bring to them? It makes them more receptive that, right? Yeah, we love Paul and look, he loves us. And so it's going to really prime their ears for what's to come. Verse nine, for you remember brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day now, what do we say that when you, when you use those, those words where you say we worked night and day? It was a merism. Uh, we learned that in Psalms. Uh, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel of God. So rather than take money for them, 
he supported himself, right? It says, we labored night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. Some people interpret that to mean that the church in Thessalonica was comprised of people who maybe didn't have a lot of money. They were on the lower end of the you know, commerce um, uh, hierarchy there. Uh, but he's saying, you know I didn't come because I was greedy because I supported myself the whole time while I was there. <clears throat> this made me think. Now, most of you know that uh, we always say that, that uh, Paul was a tent maker or a leather worker. <coughs> and it occurred to me, because I remember the stories about, you know, well, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel and, you know, how he rose to the ranks of being a Pharisee and all this. And I'm like, when do you have the time to be a tent maker? <laughs> because if you just pop in to an industry, you know, somebody who's already got a shop going in the town that you're in and you're going to just, you know, basically be a contract laborer for that person, you better know what you're doing. And I thought to, I thought to myself, and, and I, I looked this up. Nobody really knows. Everything's speculation, so I can speculate with anybody. <laughs> I did find it, apparently it was not uncommon for a rabbi to have a, another trade. Okay, so that was apparently not unusual. But think about it. What happened back in the day? In fact, what happened until probably a generation or two ago? You did what your daddy did, right? You did what your daddy did. Um, we know Paul was from Tarsus. I, this is, was new to me. Tarsus is in the pro, province of um, Cilicia. Apparently, Cilicia was known for its goats and for the leather that came from those goats. So it makes sense. Here he is, you know, surrounded by all these goats, and uh, you eat them and you use their hides. I mean, that's what you do. Um, so he must have learned, he probably went to school, uh, Hebrew school or, or whatever a religious school in the morning, and he came on that afternoon, and he had to do chores, and he had to work for his daddy, right? I mean, that just, that just makes sense. Because you pick up skills like that when you're young, and you get good at it when you're young. Um, and I think that's what allowed him to get into this. And by the way, by the time he's writing First and Second Thessalonians, Paul's like maybe mid-30s, right? He's not that old. So I'm like, man, you know, he's like three years hanging out with Jesus in the desert, and now he's doing all this. And when was he going to be a leather worker? Anyway, that just was interesting to me. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct before you believers. I'm not sure I've ever heard a contemporary pastor of anybody say, look at how holy and righteous and blameless I've been and follow me. And that includes all the people I really like. I don't know that. I've, I've never heard Tim Keller say that. I, never, I don't think I've ever heard Billy Graham say that, even though he maybe he could have. But people just don't say that. They don't say Put me under the microscope. Look at my W-2. Look at my tax return. They don't say that. Paul's saying it. Look how holy and righteous and pretty good was our conduct. No, how blameless. He's saying, I challenge you to find one thing 
that would reduce the veracity of the gospel that I gave to you, right? For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Um, I think it's Ephesians also where he uses that phrasing. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Um, here we are to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I thought about what is kingdom and glory? And it made me think he's calling them into those two things. The kingdom was the now. And for us, that's the now, right? The kingdom isn't the future. The kingdom is the now that God is calling us to. And the glory is the other stuff, right? Thankfully, the glory is what we get to do for billions of years. But the kingdom, that's the now, and he's calling us into that. So just a preamble, right? An extended preamble where Paul is saying, look at me, look at the gospel. I brought it to you. Trying to present such, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything that you see anything other than Jesus. I don't want you to see, you know, anything detracting from the gospel. And I think that's certainly a standard that we could uh, aspire to, um, even if we can't necessarily attain it. All right, that's all I got for the today. Any questions? All right, let's close. Father, we thank you that we are privileged to learn from uh, a messenger such as Paul. I pray that we could model that, uh, that we could not let our relationships, not let our behavior, not let our posts on social media, not let our um, political parties, not let our church memberships do anything that would get in the way of the truth of the gospel. May we apply it ever more and more to our own lives as we seek to share it with those of others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.